how many of you guys already knew the entire Samson story? Like you'd studied it recently and you knew, oh, anybody? <laughs> so, um, and how many of you knew Samson from the flannel graph? So. <laughs> okay, well, that's kind of where, you know, I learned all of these people and, you know, the people in the hall of faith or whatever and I learned oh here's someone you should either be like or um you know here's what they did and all of that and uh, there's not anything in Samson that you're like wow I want to be like that I mean <laughs> as you read through you're going hmm this is a, an interesting story but as we start with our story um remember we're in Judges it's the time when um after Joshua died, before Israel has a king, and what is the drill? We start reading here in chapter 13, and what's the usual drill that we go through with Israel? Yes, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, didn't they? That one, again, the people again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And what else is similar? What happens when they do that? Exactly. The Lord gave them into the hands of who? The Philistines. I don't know. Is it Philistines or Philist? Well, Philistine is the country, and I think the Philistines are the people that live there. So um, anyway, and for how long? Forty years. And keep that in your mind, because we're going to come back around to it. But that's, okay, here, that was the very first verse of all of this that we're going to read. And it has a lot of good information in it. Um, and the other thing is, there were some things that were different this time. What was something that was different this time? They didn't ask for help. The people never did cry out to God. And again, keep that in mind, because we're going to come back around and talk to that later, about that later, too. And something else was different. What was different about this judge? Well, he was a Nazarite, Tony, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But there's, there was even something else that was different, the timing on when God called this judge. He was chosen before he was even born. And um, it's interesting yeah, before he was conceived, an angel, an angel of the Lord, came to who? Manoah's wife, Samson's mom, and talked to her. And that's like the whole first chapter, is chapter 13 is this exchange. So we started out with this, and then we have this, we kind of go off into this story about how Samson was um, chosen or created, be a judge, before he was ever even born or conceived. And um, Manoah's wife was barren. She was past, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Past the childbearing age. And it sounds a lot like Abraham and Sarah, doesn't it? Um, and God, a lot of the time, works that way. Someone who he has been declared to be barren, God says, no, you're going to have a child. And they actually go, okay, God. And they, they ask him, 
or the, to the angel. They didn't realize who it was, but they ask the angel back, and they're like, okay, we, we, they never really questioned this, that their questions were, okay, we believe this is going to happen, but how are we going to raise him? That was the big deal. They wanted to know. And um, they had a lot of questions about that. And Tony, you said he was a Nazarite from the womb. So did you guys look up what is a Nazarite? Someone who's set apart. And if you went back into numbers, um, what were the kind of the signs that you were set apart? To, and who were you set apart to? To God. Yes, it was a usually a time of service that you were set apart. This was how you would show that you were set apart uh, for service to God. And what were the things that you were supposed to do or not do? You're, you weren't supposed to cut your hair. <coughs> yeah, you weren't supposed to have anything to do with grapes, not raisins, not grapes, not wine, not vinegar. <laughs> Nothing. Don't even eat the seeds. Um, they didn't have seedless grapes back then. So, um, so there was, they weren't supposed to cut their hair, and there was nothing from the vine, and then what was the other one? Yes, no dead bodies. And part of that was to always remain ceremonially clean, like the priests. So um, you weren't supposed to go near a dead body, and if you did, you had specific things that you were supposed to do and you were supposed to start over with your time and everything. And so those were the three things that were very important about a Nazarite vow. And Samson was a Nazarite before he was even born. His mom had to follow these as well. And um, from what we read, it sounds like she did. Her that his parents were very serious about this calling from God, and they took care of that. So from there, oh, and I'm going to let you guys know, we're jumping all over the place because uh, when it came down to it, it uh, the flow for the story was not in the order that the questions were. And so... I'm going to kind of try to remember to tell you what question we're on, but if you, if you don't know and you get lost, kind of go like this, and I'll tell you where we are. Um, we, <laughs> so anyway, that was question five about the Nazarite, and now we're on question seven. We want to go through and kind of summarize the main points. And did uh, anyone else find this somewhat confusing? At first. Yes. Was it? Okay. Yes. And the other thing was, there are a lot of main points in this story. There's a lot going on. Um, so what was the very first thing in this story that happened? And we already, we already touched on it. Mm, even before that. Mm -hmm. The very first thing. What happened? Yes, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and God gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Then God raised up a deliverer, um, and again, that was different. It was the angel of the Lord coming to his mom, telling him, 
this guy is going to be set apart to God from the very beginning. Um, who were, uh, it was Manoah and his wife, right? And then what happens after that? They, they follow the directions that they've been given by the angel of the Lord and they offer up a sacrifice. They didn't realize it at the time. They just wanted to feed him. And then by the time that was done, they figured out who they had been talking to. And, and, and that was an interesting exchange between Manoah and his wife because she's very practical, I think. She's like, you know, if God was going to use us, he, he's not going to strike us dead because he already told us all the stuff he's going to do. So she kind of kept a level head. And then, then we kind of move on to... What's the first thing that happens with Samson? Yes, the Lord stirs him. And the next thing in chapter 14, what's he do? Hey, I like her. I like that Philistine woman. Yeah. Yes. And, again, we're going through this right now, and we're just going through the what happened, and then we're going to talk about all of these events and what. Because it's very easy to go through this story and say all of these events and not realize how they're working together. So, anyway, he likes this Philistine woman, and so then he goes, it's like, okay, mom and dad, we're going down there. And on the way down there, he what? He's, he's going to visit. He kills a lion, exactly. And then um, he, they kind of do a lot of back and forth. He goes back, and the second time he's going through, he goes and he sees where he's killed a lion, and what? He eats... Yeah, he eats the honey from the carcass of the lion, and he also gives some to his parents. Yes, Tony? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes. And hold on to that, because we are going to talk about that again, Tom. Yes, Tony, you're exactly right. And those are the th things that you want to say. Hey, hmm, I thought he did this, why is he doing that? And that's very good. Um, so he eats the honey and he gives some to his parents. And then it's like, okay, we're going to go through with this wedding. And Samson puts a riddle. They bring all these wedding guests, which apparently you show up and they have guests for you. Um, and then he's kind of throwing a party. And what does he do? He... He puts a riddle to his wedding companions. And they're stumped for, what, seven days of the wedding until his, his bride um, basically nags him enough that he goes, oh, good grief, um, I'll tell you. Samson had a problem with that, didn't he? Um, 
Oh, good grief, I'll tell you. Um, anyway, she tells her people the answer. And Samson gets mad. And so then what does he do? Yes, he goes to Ashkelon and he kills 30 men, takes their plunder, takes it back, gives it to the 30 wedding guests, and then goes off in a half. Um, so the father-in-law, in the meantime, goes, well, I guess I'll give, I'll give my daughter to this companion that was with Samson. So he does that. Samson comes back to get his bride. He doesn't know this has happened. And what happens? Yeah, the father-in-law tells Samson what he's done. No, you can't go in and see your bride. I gave her to somebody else. Samson gets mad, goes off in a huff, and he ties the... Yes, the poor foxes. He ties their tails together with torches and sends them off through the fields. And did you notice the timing on this? He came back when the crops were all ripe and they're already starting to harvest. They've got some of it heaped up. And so the foxes go through and catch all the fields on fire and also um, all of the olive orchards, all the olive trees. And, you know, that's, that's also an important thing. You're going... He couldn't have done all of this damage doing this with the foxes if it had been when the, you know, the grain was still growing, when it was still green. Um, but yes, you get very particular about fire when all of your grain is ripe and ready to come in. And so Samson did that and caused a lot of damage. So then... The, the Philistines say, well, why did he do this? And the answer was what? Yes, well, that's, that's the Timnite's son-in-law, and he was mad because he gave his bride away to someone else. So then the Philistines burn the wife and the father-in-law. And then Samson comes back and he kills the people that did this to his wife and father-in-law. Which, for us, that doesn't make any sense because for us, they never really got married. But it's in their uh, customs, thanks, in their customs, they, <laughs> they were technically married and he was technically... He was his father-in-law and all of that. So anyway, he kills the people that killed his wife. And then that triggers an, a very, seems kind of odd. Who comes, who has a problem with this, that he killed the men that killed his wife? Yes. The Philistines come against the men of Judah because they're like, this guy's wreaking havoc. And the men of Judah are like, why are you coming against us? And they said, well, Samson. And the men of Judah go 
down to Samson. And they basically say, you know, you're causing a lot of problems. We're going to turn you over to the Philistines. And again, we're going to look at this a little closer in, in a minute, but overview, the men of Judah turned Samson over to the Philistines. And as a result of that, Samson kills how many Philistines? He kills a thousand Philistines, and uh, with what? Jawbone of a donkey, fresh jawbone of a donkey, and uh, again, Tony, hmm, why is he touching a jawbone of a donkey? So then, after Samson does that, he's tired, he's out in the wilderness, and he gets kind of whiny, and he's like, God? Are you going to let me die here if there's sin? God opens uh, the rock and Samson is able to drink and get refreshed and all of that. And then now that he's refreshed, he's back to his old trick. He goes and sees a prostitute in Gaza. And then they surround him. And what happens? Yeah, he just gets up, takes the gate with him, and puts it up on a hill. So um, anyway, so he's caused a lot of destruction, and they still can't. Uh, they can't capture Samson. They're still working on that. And then who does he meet? He meets Delilah. <laughs> Just a wee bit. He is a bit just spoiled. And did you guys notice that Delilah is the first lady in this thing that has a name? <laughs> so everyone else is just somebody's wife, somebody's daughter, somebody, you know, somebody's bride, some prostitute, and then we have Delilah. So don't know why, but there it is. And it's kind of noticeable. But anyway, um, and Delilah, Samson meets Delilah. He's, again, pretty infatuated with her. She, however, has some ulterior, like she's got something else going on. She actually, the lords of the Philistines come and visit her. She strikes a deal with them. Yeah, I'll take the money. That sounds good to me. I'll see what I can do. Yeah, it was. Each one of them was going to give her 1,100 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. So anyway, and it wasn't just general random Philistines. It was the Lord's, it's the people in charge that are coming to her. So uh, she does that. And then we get into our um, thing with Samson where she starts trying to figure out what his strength is. He tells her a lie. She kind of says, oh, the Philistines are upon you. Yeah, that didn't work. And he, how many times does he do that? Three times. And then the fourth time, uh, she keeps nagging him, nagging him. And I like the way it put it, till his, what, soul was vexed to death. <laughs> I kind of think I know that feeling. But anyway. <laughs> and um, he's like, okay, I'm just going to tell you. And he does. And then he goes to sleep in her lap. 
And she has his head shaved. The Philistines come in, they capture him, they gouge out his eyes, and they take Samson where he works in the mill, and then they bring him in to entertain them at their festival. And what festival was this? It was a festival to Dagon. They were celebrating Dagon's letting them capture Samson, and they're having a big party. There are a lot of people there. And Samson basically asks God to give him strength to be able to basically avenge his eyes, take revenge on them for his eyes. And also he asks God for strength because he didn't have any strength, which, backing up, he was surprised, wasn't he? He was surprised when he was unable to go out and root up the gates and walk away this time. Um, and, and he killed 3,000, which was more in his death than he had killed during his life. So that's basically our overview of Samson. Again, very busy guy. And what are some of the things that, as you went through that, you kind of thought about Samson? What insight did this whole story give you into his character. (laughs) He didn't get spanked enough as a child. He was pretty spoiled, wasn't he? He seemed to be pretty spoiled. Um, What else? He was strong-willed. He had an eye for the ladies, obviously. And it was a a weakness of his, a a big weakness. I also noticed he was kind of conniving and sly, you know, with setting up the the bet that he did with the wedding companions. And also when he would go, oh, I'll tell you this and I'll tell you that and all of that kind of thing. He he just kind of was um, conniving. What else about Samson did you? He was vengeful. He was. Yes, and he was an angry guy, exactly. He was. He, he was. No, he didn't really. His parents took it seriously. He never did. He never really took his Nazarite vow seriously. Um, and he kind of just assumed he was going to have this strength from God indefinitely, didn't he? He also gave in to nagging despite what we would see as the obvious outcome. And I think part of that was probably his arrogance. He, he just thought he was always going to have this strength. He, he just... Yeah. And I almost wonder if he wasn't arrogant because he was surprised when he wasn't strong. Like, he didn't see it coming, that he wasn't going to be strong after that. And I, I kind of think that's interesting that he just assumed that he would be. Um, and uh, the other thing was he, was he was kind of whiny, like after he had killed the men and he's out in the, um, you know, and he's like, oh, God, are you going to 
just leave me here to die and fall into the hands of the Philistines? Which I thought was an odd thing because he's fraternizing with the Philistines, so why does it matter? If he... <laughs> um, but And then he also was kind of a braggart because after he killed the thousand men with a jaw, he's like, with you know, I killed them with the jawbone of an ass. I killed a thousand men. And he's, you know, very vocal about that. And he was saying, I did this. He wasn't saying with, you know, because of God. He was basically saying he did it. So he didn't really, as we kind of touched on that, he didn't respect his Nazarite vow. And there were some indicators, and Tony, you came up with one, he, um, he ate the honey out of the dead carcass, and he wasn't even supposed to be touching dead carcass. And he also gave it to his parents so that they violated this and didn't even tell them. Um, he uses a fresh jawbone of a donkey to kill a thousand men, um, and he's, not again, not supposed to be touching this. And the thing is, there were specific things that he was supposed to do to... Uh, restart his vow if he if he did touch a carcass or a dead body. Um, and then he tells Delilah the secret to his strength just to get her off his back. And kind of like, oh yeah, I'll tell you, that's not a big deal. So... Um, Yeah, basically um, all of his character flaws that we see in him as an adult um, are pretty natural human tendencies for having been raised as a special child. That you're, you know, oh my goodness, you are. And so that's interesting that you say that. And also we're going to kind of visit that here in a minute and kind of see where God is working in this. Um, but before we get there, kind of question 10, what evidence do we see that Israel's covenantal, uh, their covenantal faithlessness, what is it? Kind of what was the status between Israel and the Philistines at this point? The Israel was being ruled by the Philistines. And um, how long had they been ruled by the Philistines? For 40 years, yes. They had been under Philistine rule for 40 years. And what was the other thing that we said that had happened in this time or had not happened in this time? They didn't cry out to God. And so how do you think that the Israelites, how... How were they doing under the Philistine rule? You have to ask, why did they not cry out? Yeah, why didn't they cry out? Why what? They cry? I mean, every other time that comes down, they talk about how bad the oppression was, and they cry out. So why did they cry out? There you go. You got it, Pat. They conformed. They had, in, in essence, they had basically, they were pretty content to live under the Philistines. Um, they basically had assimilated. And the men of Judah, when they come to see Samson, they're mad at him. That, and how many men were there, the men of Judah? 
we go back to that. Yeah, there were 3,000, Genevieve. 3,000 men of Judah are all in agreement that they're mad at Samson because he's upsetting the apple cart. And their exchange with, with Samson um, and also the Philistines, the men of Judah in, 15, in uh, chapter 15, verse 10, they ask the um, Philistines, why have you come up against us? Because the Philistines came up against the men of Judah. And they're like, why have you come? Why are you attacking us? So they are obviously not under this intense oppression that they feel oppressed. And I'm going to emphasize that. They don't feel oppressed. Um, And why don't they feel oppressed? And then in verse 11, uh, when the men of Judah go to see Samson, and they're like, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? They're mad at him for attacking the Philistines. Um, And then they say, we've come to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And then he asks them, okay, you're not going to kill me, right? And they're like, no, we're just going to bind you and hand you over. And so how is this picture different? If you went back and looked in Judges 1, did you guys go back and look there and see what was, what was happening there? This is in the very first very first part of Judges, what happened? The people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judas shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And then we get to Verse 18, or actually verse 8. The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. So they're pretty on fire to do what God has said, to get rid of the Philistines, to get rid of the Canaanites, to get rid of all of the ites. They're very much on fire. And in, let's see, verse 18, Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And what have we heard in this story? We heard Gaza, we heard Ashkelon, and guess what? They're not fighting the Philistines. They're not even ruling those places that they captured. They're living under Philistine rule. And not even crying out. And that is a very big deal. And so what has happened over time, and kind of again, in the overall picture of Judges, we have the cycle, don't we? Where the people cry out. Actually, the people do evil, and then... God gives them over to their enemies. They're oppressed. 
they cry out, God sends a judge that rescues them, and then they live, they have peace. But we already know that we ran out of the peace time quite a while back. And the other thing is, if you read in Judges 2, let's see, 2.19, we kind of already had the overview of what's going to happen. In Judges 2.19, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so this has happened, and we've talked about this, the downward spiral of Israel. And we've spiraled downward so far that we're just about not even distinct from the Philistines. We're just about to become part of the people who were inhabiting Canaan when we came. And is that what God wants? Well, Tony, that you mentioned that. Let's look at uh, question nine. When, and when it said that, go, that the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines, um, how, did you, how do you interpret that? Like, what do you say? Seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. He was creating an opportunity against the Philistines. And um, it was. But no, still, I think we have an answer. And yes, and here's the thing about that exactly, Marilyn. Um, the thing about that is, when you read that, and if you're not paying attention to the whole story, you're thinking, oh, he wants Samson to go in and infiltrate the Philistines so that he can kill them all. And, I mean, that's kind of, if you kind of think about, oh, he, you know, he's going to kind of send his spy in or something. He's, but the thing is, you, had, you hit the nail on the head that... He was creating an opportunity, and the thing was, they didn't go up against the Philistines. They didn't want to fight the Philistines. And God is going to use Samson and all of his character flaws and all of the things that he does very rashly to stir up some dissension. And because, really, Israel should be stirring up dissension, but they're not. And God couldn't even, you know, God's like got to get them to kind of get up off their comfortable seats and, <laughs> and have some dissension. And guess what's happening? They're starting to be, wait a minute, they're starting to be a little bit of unrest. These are our enemies. And we're not there yet, and that's not going to be completely accomplished here. However, back here, when it said, he will begin to free, it didn't ever say he was going to do that completely. It said he's going to begin to free them. 
And so he's getting the process started. So Tony, in, in our minds, he is not doing anything like he should. He's not, and, and he's not going up and fighting them all. But the thing is, God had to get that wedge in there, and that is what he is doing with Samson. And so he's getting that wedge in, back in there, between to kind of pry the Israelites back apart. Because the whole thing is, they're supposed to be apart. They're supposed to be set apart. And that's where they, that's what God told them when they came into the land. You are set apart. And the other thing is, that's God's plan all the way through, is to keep them apart and keep that line there and not let it just dissolve into people that worship other gods. He, he wants, he is very jealous, and he wants to make sure that that apartness doesn't go away. Yes. And so then, it, it is very hard. Exactly. It's not, because the story's not finished. Exactly. And so, we, didn't, we don't get to wrap it all up and do the credits. So, yes, Marilyn? Oh, hey, Marilyn. That's a good one. Um, exactly. So, yeah, Marilyn, exactly. And Nancy and I had this conversation because we do. We get that picture in our head that Samson's like Incredible Hulk or, yeah, I always had him pictured as like the butter got Fabio, you know. I had him pictured as Fabio. And so, <laughs> but but um, Nancy kind of brought up the point. He may not have looked like that. He may have been kind of an average guy. Who had because all of his strength came from God, and so he may have been walking down the street, and you might not have been able to tell him apart from the guy that doesn't lift weights. But his strength came from God, and um, so we have to get. Sometimes we have to get our little caricatures out of our head. Yeah. Yes, which we've already seen that. I mean, how many times have we seen it? Well, they didn't give up God completely. They just did God and all of these other gods that were out there. And whoever, the, whoever appeared to be the strongest god of the day was the one that everybody was going to bow down to on that day. And it was just, well, we've got Yahweh, but, I mean, there's all these other ones too. And whoever decides to make it rain, that's who we're going to bow down to or whatever. And um, that's not what, God doesn't allow that. And that's part of us, I think that's part of what's so great about studying judges is that we get a really good picture of God 
and who he is and what he expects. And it's not God plus some other gods. It's just God. And Phyllis. Exactly. It's going to be an unexpected thing. And kind of on that vein, um, if you take, this is question 11, if you looked at the times when the spirit rushed upon Samson, what did you find out? Um, The first time that the spirit rushed upon Samson, and we talked about that a little earlier, in, in 13, the end of 13, the spirit of the Lord began to stir him And then, right after that, we start 14. And what happened? Well, no, this was the first time that the Spirit of the Lord stirred Samson. Nope, 1325. Yeah. He went and looked at the girl. And here we are. I lost my... There's three. So he went... He, he saw the Philistine woman and she was pleasing in his eyes. And so... That's where the Spirit of the Lord stirred him, and then he's like, okay, get her. And it's not what we would expect the Spirit of the Lord's stirring to do. It's like doing this, and I'm going to start creating some dissension here by using this flaw that Samson has and doing this. Because it said his parents didn't realize that it was from the Lord that he wanted the Philistine woman. The next time... That was in 14.4. His parents did not realize that that was from the Lord. They were trying to convince him to marry someone that was an Israelite. In 14.6, that's when the spirit rushed upon him, and he did what? He tore the lion apart. So, And then in 14.19 is where he went down and struck down the 30 men to get their cloaks and stuff to give to his companions. And then in 1514 is where the spirit rushed upon him and he broke out of the rope. They just melted away and he killed a thousand men. So these are all the times that the spirit rushed upon him. And what happened every time? There was destruction and there was conflict and there was, and it's not what we would think of as the spirit working. And I hope you're covering this second hour. <laughs> Good. Because um, it's, it doesn't quite line up with what we think is the Spirit working. But is God accomplishing his purpose here? Yes, he is. And yes, always. That is exactly it. And um, that actually is great because that leads us to question 12. Uh, despite the lack of concern Samson shows for God's general law for Israel, he was okay with intermarriage. 
Um, and God's specific call in his life, he did not take his Nazarite vow seriously. God still uses Samson to accomplish his will. And it's kind of, that this whole story is a little bit unsettling. I don't know if it was to you guys, but it's, it is unsettling. Because you're like, we want a hero. We want Samson to be good. And he's not. But the thing is, who's the story about? The story's about God. And the story's about what God is doing. And God doesn't see what's happening and react to it and change his plan and all of that. God's got focus. And God knows where he's going with it. And God knows what his people need right here. And they need some dissension with the Philistines before they disappear as a people. And so that's... That's a good thing to remember, that God doesn't always work how we think he should, um, and he doesn't work in our lives how we think he should. So anyway, with that, we'll take a break. and Let's hop into this. We are going to be, um, this is the, the theological applicational side, so this is where I get to have a lot of fun, and I don't have to cover four chapters like she does. Um, but when you come to bizarre stories like Samuel, I think it was said a number of times, this is just a weird story, a bizarre story with a strange guy who, uh, for all that I can see, has no redeemable qualities. I mean, we kind of settled on he probably wasn't even good looking and buff. So <laughs> I don't know what there is to like about this guy. Um, that was his last good quality, and you guys took that away. So I don't know why... When you come to stories like this, it's really helpful to ask this big question is, like, these are not, this is not us just eavesdropping into history. This is us reading a document that was carefully crafted for someone. And so it's always helpful to, to, to reflect on, if someone wrote this down to somebody else, they had to have a purpose behind telling this story. There are so many, and probably more important figures in Israel's history that are not mentioned. Like, they don't get the airtime that Samson gets. I would have rather, I mean, I could pick several other judges I would have rather had four chapters of material on, and yet we get that with Samson. Why include this? And so from a theological perspective, what is the author trying to tell us? Now, um, there are a number of different ways to categorize theology. So we ask the question, why was this story included? We could look at it from the perspective of a discipline known as just biblical theology. And you might say, Ryan, of course, all theology ought to be biblical. Theology. But biblical theology is a particular style of doing theology, and that is to just let the text say what the text says. So whenever you are doing biblical theology, as it's formally described, you are saying, okay, I want to know everything one author said. So I'm going to do a theology of Paul or a theology of John. And I'm going to limit my understanding of grace according to what Paul said. So it's not grace according to the Bible. It's grace according to Paul. Or you could look at it in terms of testament. How is Yahweh portrayed in the Old Testament? And I have a theology of that. And how is he portrayed in the New? I think they actually harmonize. But... When you do biblical theology, you actually kind of start to compartmentalize like this. 
Um, you could do the Pentateuch or the, uh, the Torah. You could do genre. You could study poetry. So that would be the Psalms. You could study some of the wisdom literature, Job, um, Song of Songs, um, Proverbs, all these. You can, you can study theology like this. And actually what you guys do the first hour is you do a, a bit of a subset of biblical theology, which is known as exegetical theology. Um, exegetical theology is slightly different than biblical theology. Biblical theology says, what does Paul the Apostle say about grace? And there we have 13 letters, 14 if you want to count Hebrews, I don't, but Paul wrote 13 letters. Um, I can say, what did he say about grace in these letters? Exegetical theology says, we're going to read the book of Romans, and whatever Romans says at that point is kind of our understanding of grace. So, you guys are going through Judges, verse by verse, or kind of paragraph by paragraph, as you have to do in larger sections. That is an exegetical theology. Now, this is also a way that we can understand the story of Scripture. Biblical theology looks at the story. And so we have a big name for that here at Sunnybrook. We call it the, we didn't invent it, but we use it a lot, the meta narrative which just says, what is the overarching story of Scripture? And I want to know, why does this story, the one about Samson, well, how does it fit in this, in this meta-narrative? And so if you remember um, what we've got on the, on the wall there in the sanctuary, we kind of break the whole story down. There's creation, fall, and then redemption, and restoration. This is the general story of Scripture. It runs from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. God created, then we ruined it, and then the rest of Scripture from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 is God redeeming and restoring the world. So that is one way to look at it. How does this story fit into this? A better way, or my new favorite way to talk about the meta narrative is instead of this, it's creation, fall, and this is actually kind of how Paul talks about it in the New Testament. Israel, Jesus, church. That covers the whole Bible. And it breaks it down a little more, where now I can fit the Samson material as kind of in this area, trying to tell us something about eventually what's going to happen here with Jesus. Now, that's biblical theology. And I don't want to talk about biblical theology today. You guys have already done that to some extent. Actually, I want to talk about another style of theology known as systematic theology, which takes everything we know from the Bible, from general revelation, which is just kind of our observation of the world, from reason, from everywhere that we can find truth. And it begins to harmonize what we believe about God and Scripture. And so systematic theology has tons of categories. It has a category, what do we believe about sin, about grace, about salvation, about the Holy Spirit? And it actually has a very particular one, theology. Theology is just the study of God. But there's actually one that's called theology proper. It's a smaller category, which is literally just the study of God and his attributes. And I think now that we've made our way through the systematic theology, I mean, Samson tells us so much about sin, and it tells us a lot about grace. It even uses words like salvation. You see spirit in here. 
But I think the most important thing that we can find in the story of Samson is a deeper, richer theology of God and his character. Now, when we study God, he has a number of characters. I'm going to run out of space. Um, when we see, study God, he's got a number of characteristics. So those of you who are theology program alumni, you'll remember a lot of these things we've already talked about. But God, he is, for one, he is simple. Now, can anybody tell me what it means? That seems a bit blasphemous to say that God is simple. But what does uh, theology say? Why do we say that God is simple? He's unchanging. He is not composed of parts. He, you cannot reduce him to anything. Because you, you realize if, if God is like a culmination of parts, then there is something Greater than, beyond God. He is known in the theological world as simple. You cannot break him down any further. He also has this quality known as aseity, which is just a really weird word of saying he is self-existing. The only self-existing being that has ever existed. Everything else is what's known as a contingent being. I exist because God allows it. And because he sustains the breath and he allows my heart to pump and because he brought my parents together. Like, I had nothing to do with my existence. I am totally dependent on something outside. Everything is dependent on something else except for God. He has a quality known as his aseity. He is self-existing. He is also omnipresent. He's not confined to any one location. It's often alarming for people to find out that you do know like God can't be absent from hell because then that means there would be somewhere he isn't. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There is nothing beyond his scope. And then probably the two that are going to help us the most today, he is omnipotent, omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And he is omniscient. Omniscience, all-knowing. These two funnel into a very important doctrine in the Christian faith, and that is God is all-sovereign. I type a lot on the computer and rely heavily on spell check, so if sovereign's wrong, I'm sorry. God is all-sovereign, namely because he knows everything, and he is the most powerful thing that has ever or will ever exist. And when I look at the Samson story, I realize his sovereignty is on incredible display. Because I can't for the life of me figure out why Samson is included in the Bible. Why this moron who cannot get it, who doesn't even have, you know, the gold's gym physique anymore, he is somehow used by God, and, and to the audacity, you guys kind of dabbled in it, but the audacity for the, the, the writer of this book to say that this guy, this guy who went with whoever he could find and broke every rule of his Nazarite vow, he had the Spirit of God on him in power? And I'm like, okay, so maybe my categories of God are just too small. Because in my head, I think, isn't it more like God and, and more in line with his character for him to use like good people, obedient people, 
submissive people, people that are faithful to the covenant. And I think if I like, like that's my knee-jerk reaction. And then I start to think about it. I'm like, well, who would that leave? I have no idea who he would use. Like the fact that God uses people at all is rather scandalous. And I, you know, maybe a good conclusion is I shouldn't think myself all that much better than Samson, even though I don't have such the rap sheet as him. But the truth is, like, Samson, this story stretches my theology of God, my, my theology proper, my understanding of God and his character. It stretches it. And it asks me to consider, like, how do God and evil or sin play together? Like, we know that God wants to do away with sin, wants to work in spite of sin, wants to get rid of sin, even sends his son to deal with sin. But is God ever working with sin? With evil? Is he that sovereign to not just work in spite of sin, but through it? And a great exercise is to ask, did Judas Iscariot have a choice? Or was he ordained by God to be wicked and to do what he did? Is God so sovereign that he works with sin, not just around it? He's not, you know, there's this, this kind of this, little exercise, mental game you can play. Like the God is, in terms of how he deals with sin and a complicated humanity and he's always maintaining his sovereignty, he can always do whatever he needs to in the future. It's this idea that God is a master chess player and that he's always 10 moves ahead. Now, the most embarrassing thing in my life was whenever I was about, um, I have a half-brother who's 16 years younger than me. And when he was about five, I have not, since that point, he's 14 now, I have not been able to beat him at chess. He is scary gifted, like three-time state champion in chess. I just, I quit playing chess against anyone, because if you can't beat your little brother, why try? <laughs> he, and you know, um, I asked him when he was really little, and this is so obnoxious coming from a six or seven-year-old. I said, how are you beating me every time? Like, how are you thinking through this game? And he said, well, Ryan, you're thinking five to ten moves ahead in terms of what you want to do. And he said, I'm thinking five to ten moves ahead in terms of what I'm going to make you do. <sighs> and that's a master chess player, right? That's a kid that he controls the game. And God, we, we believe that God is just so good that whatever we, we play, he can react. He's, he's, he's got that many moves ahead. But the truth is he's probably more like the way my brother describes playing chess. It's almost like he's playing both sides of the board. When I realized that my little brother was playing my pieces for me, forcing me to make certain moves. Oh, okay, so like you're playing both, you're playing black and white. I'm done with chess. I'm going to go back to checkers. <laughs> and so maybe God is playing both sides of the board, which makes us very uncomfortable that God might be in bed with evil, so to speak. It makes, I, Diane is furious just looking at me, thinking about that right now. She's got a very Puritan heart, so this stuff bothers her. Like, it's, it's complicated to think, like, maybe, was Samson, was he really a bad guy, or was this his role to play in God's plan? And so we have a number of people throughout Scripture. I could go backwards and talk to, like, did Pharaoh have a choice? It seems like for the first nine plagues, Pharaoh like, hardened his heart, and then it seems like right at the end that God hardened it for him. It's what's known as in the 
kind of systematic theology as a judicial hardening, where God punishes you by handing you over to what you want. That's Romans 1. But let's start with Samson. <laughs> so in Judges, we have the story of Samson. And, and, and you guys went over it, so we don't need to belabor the point. But he, God works out the salvation he promised to the Israelites, sets that in motion through a very complicated guy like Samson. God works through the sin of Samson. Now here's another one. If you go to 1 Samuel, we'll just go forward. We won't go backwards. I got a couple of examples where God doesn't seem to be working around or in spite of, but through sin. If you turn to 1 Samuel 28, it's right before King Saul is killed by the Philistines. Does anybody remember his last-ditch effort? He goes and consults the Witch of Endor. Now, the Witch of Endor is obviously a shyster because when she goes and she... Um, and, and Saul asks her to raise up the spirit of Sam, the recently deceased Samuel, the prophet. And she does. It freaks her out because she's been scamming everybody to this point. And all of a sudden, the true spirit of the deceased Samuel shows up and starts to talk to Saul. Now, here's the question. Is she... Just did she finally tap into some sort of demonic power? Or did Yahweh practice necromancy, raising the dead, consulting dead spirits? Because the witch sure seems surprised. And, I, and the only conclusion I can draw from the story is that just to prove a point and to confirm with Saul that he had rejected him as his king, God raises up, did exactly what you're not supposed to, raises up an evil spirit. It's like, wow, God works through the, the sin of even witches to confirm his rejection of King Saul and to set in place his, uh, his anointed king, David. This is a fun one. Go to 1 Kings 22. Right in the middle of... Um, the Elijah to Elisha transition, two famous prophets in First and Second Kings. You have um, I mean, Elijah spent a great deal of his career, of his prophetic ministry, um, speaking against King Ahab. King Ahab, this is this is just how like complicated God's handling of evil is. King Ahab is listed as the most evil king that Israel has ever had, and yet he was blessed with one of the longest reigns of any of the kings. How does that work out? Very, very righteous kings have much shorter reign than him. And then, right as it takes a break from the Elijah story before it heads into the Elisha story, you have King Ahab is wanting to go to war. So King Ahab is in the northern half of, in the northern ten tribes of Israel, and he's wanting to go to war against Syria. Now he consults his prophets. King, King Ahab is hilarious because he's got his group of ragtag, wicked prophets. And then he's got prophets of Yahweh who he hates, doesn't like them, because everything they say is just annoying. So he's always consulting the guys that kind of tickle his ears, and he asks them, should I go to war against Syria? And they're like, yeah, it'll work out. You should do it. You're so powerful. 
we've consulted, you know, whoever their gods are. We've consulted, and, and it looks like you're going to be successful. You should go to war. And, and Ahab is enlisting the help of the weaker king from the south. And the weaker king from the south, where Jerusalem is, where the temple is, he says, okay, I'm ready to go to battle with you. We should probably consult a prophet of Yahweh. Can we just ask one? I mean, you got 400 of these clowns. Let's just ask one prophet of Yahweh. And Ahab's like, oh, I hate that guy. I do not. He never has anything good to say. I don't want to talk to him. He said, please, let's just, let's just cover our bases, talk to the prophet of Yahweh. And Micaiah walks in, a prophet of the true God. And he just says, yeah, sure, go to battle. And <laughs> It's obviously a sarcastic remark because King Ahab says, like, will you not just tell me the truth? This is why I hate you. Why are you in my, why are you in my palace? And he says, well, yeah. If I told you the truth, the truth is you're not going to, this isn't going to work out in your favor. You're actually going to die. But King Ahab doesn't listen to him because if you read the text in um, 1 Kings 22, God sends lying spirits to King Ahab's other prophets. God has the false prophets falsely prophesy victory for Ahab and seduces Ahab into going to, into victory and die, or going into battle and dying. It doesn't say false prophets working on behalf of Satan. It says God sent the lying spirits. Like every time I read one of these stories, the, my my view of God gets messed up, and I and I just think, wow, he is his sovereignty covers a lot more territory than I'm often willing to accept. I, I find out my, my view of God is maybe a bit sterile. Maybe I want to protect him from the evil of the world, and he just kind of chuckles, oh, I need protecting, I'm sure. And it, it's amazing how God deals, he works through sin. Another one. Um, Jonah, we all know this story. This is another children's Bible flannel graph story that we all know. I threw away, my son has these board books. Um, so we have like a bunch of children's Bible. These board books that are just like one little book of um, biblical characters. And there's this Jonah one who, it's like Jonah, God told Jonah to go preach and then he didn't and then a fish swallowed him up and then he did. And I'm like, that is not the story. So I threw that book away. Um, that's not the story. Jonah didn't want to go preach. Why did he not want to go preach to the Ninevites, the capital city of Assyria? <laughs> that's their enemy. They, they're incredibly powerful. They're very nearby, and they're constantly sending little raiding troops to kind of pick apart the Israelite terror. Jonah's like, no, I just, I know God is so gracious. If I'm going to go take a message of repentance to them, they will repent, and then he won't destroy them, and then we will reap the poor benefits of that. This is not going to go well for us if I go and give them a chance to repent. God, just go destroy them. God, no. So eventually, <laughs> Jonah is such a whiner all throughout, just like kind of kicking his can down the road. Fine, here's the message of repentance. <laughs> If you guys will, God won't. And they do. They repent. They kind of, they do what they have to do, humble themselves before this foreign God, and they are not destroyed. And Jonah's furious. I knew you would do this, God. Now we think, like Jonah's just kind of having a bad day. 
I think Jonah knows what's about to happen. And that is God is saving for himself an evil army of Ninevites. The Ninevites are not in heaven, by the way. That was not the, it was not a salvific repentance. It was a, you better recognize how powerful I am or I will kill you right now. That's kind of what it was. And they, sure, <laughs> I'm sure they held on to their other gods as well. So there's still an evil army, an evil city, an evil nation of pagans. And God saves them for, I'm convinced, no other reason than about 20, 25 years later, they come in and crush the Israelites. Jonah would have been prophesying in the late 600s, maybe 700 B.C. or early 800s. I hate going backwards. Early 800s, whatever. Because in 722 B.C., it's generally thought to be less than a generation later, the king of Assyria, whose capital city was Nineveh, whose standing army was not destroyed because God chose not to destroy them, marches down and just burns Israel to the ground. And it's, God is quite sovereign if he's willing to use evil in such a way. And then about 150 years later, it happened in the south. King Nebuchadnezzar, who um, Daniel in his book tells us that God appointed him. I mean, if you look through, this is why elections crack me up. Everybody gets all panicky. Like, you, I almost want to say, like, democracy is a farce. Like, like an election is, is like a joke in, biblically because God says that he appoints every single ruler and leader. It's said multiple times throughout Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar was appointed to rule Babylon, but I'm also convinced to, to judge the south and to crush Babylon and to tear down that beautiful temple that had been profaned by an idolatrous nation. God uses evil to deal with evil, which is fascinating. Israel had a heart... It, like, we think of, uh, like, if I could have just lived in the old, I would have loved to go to the temple and to sacrifice and to do all that and just live under the law. Like, that just seems like such a beautiful old way of living. Israel was terrible at the law for almost their entire existence. They get it with Moses, and they don't ever figure out how to not be polytheists, how to not chase after other gods, for about a thousand years. 1444 B.C., they get the law. 586 B.C., they go into Babylon. They're in Babylon for 70 years. And then when they come back, for the first time, they are truly monotheists. They finally just worship God, just worship Yahweh. The whole time they were in the Holy Land before that, following after the Canaanite gods. God deals with it by raising up evil rulers. And God sends them back by raising up someone who, I, I don't know that he has any other redeeming qualities other than that he sent the Israelites back in King Cyrus. It's very interesting the way that God works. And then here's one that's not in your Bible. But Alexander the Great. God, uh, God I mean, I have no reason to believe that God didn't put him in place for a very specific reason. But he conquers what at that point would have been kind of the cradle of civilization. And it would have been the whole biblical world. Alexander the Great in the 4th century B.C. just sweeps in and in a matter of years completely takes over. And he does, he does a number of things that I'm so grateful he did, wicked though he was. He brought the Greek language 
into the Middle East and the ancient Near East. He brought Greek philosophy, which we're thankful because without Greek philosophy, you wouldn't have Paul's letters. They're very, very philosophical. And he brought the Greek infrastructure that would be um, a, a, a single like um, economy or a single currency, a worldwide currency, so to speak, and a road system. Now, all of that is really important because about 400 years later, some guys called the apostles and their companions are going to be writing something called the New Testament in a quasi-universal language known as Greek. Paul's going to evangelize the Roman world using the Roman road system built on top of the Greek infrastructure. And like I said, the apostles used Roman philo- or Greek philosophy to, to write their letters. I mean, it, it kind of undergirds all of that. Stoicism, all this stuff undergirds all. I'm so grateful that God used a wicked man like Alexander the Great to do what he did, which lets me have these last 27 books. And it's the reason that the West became Christian. God works through evil, not around it, not in spite of it. He works through it. He's much more sovereign than I want to give him credit for. You guys mentioned Judas. I I just don't know if Judas would have had a choice. We're going to look at it in John. John 18. This is Jesus describing what's going on when Judas comes to betray him with a kiss. So, John 18, um, starting in verse 1. So Jesus has, has been speaking with his disciples. He, he teaches them, or he, he prays the high priestly prayer over them. And then he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with the disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, basically temple police, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, Whom do you seek? Knowing all that would happen to him. And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. And then this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and chaos ensued. It seems abundantly clear that Jesus knows what's going on. It seems quite clear that Judas was appointed for a reason, to do what he had to do for a reason. That God brought about the circumstances that would achieve our substitutionary atonement through the actions of an evil man. Uh, I had a professor in... in, uh, in school who said in terms of like in Galatians where it talks about that Jesus came in the fullness of time that that's probably a reference to all these factors that had to be in place before Christ would be killed he said there's only probably about a 50-year window in all of human history that Jesus would have been killed how he was for saying the things he was by the people who killed him you had to have 
Rome in place as an occupying army because they are those who can execute a capital punishment outside of the temple that doesn't involve stoning. And they can do it on a holy day, and they can do it using, ex uh, using crucifixion. Fulfill some prophecies about cursed being the one who hangs on a tree. And then you have to have a group of people that can rally the population to turn on someone. That would have been the Pharisees. The populace loved the Pharisees. And you had to have some powerful religious men who could convince Rome to crucify someone. That would be the Sadducees. There are all these things. And you see that Jesus gets in trouble using words like resurrection, raising people from the dead. That's a problem with the Sadducees. You see Jesus gets in trouble violating Sabbath law. That's a problem with the Pharisees. You see Jesus doing all these things and rubbing everyone the wrong way. In this small period of time, he says just what he has to say to get killed for doing what he was doing. And Judas was kind of the last piece of the puzzle. And God uses evil Rome, evil Sadducees, and completely wrong-headed, probably evil Pharisees. And then a man named Judas who is obviously working on behalf of evil and he achieves the most beautiful thing ever. The salvation of humanity. God doesn't work around evil or in spite of it. He just seems to go right through it. And I just want to keep him kind of compartmentalized away from all these nasty things. And he's, I don't know who he would use if he didn't use evil. And then finally, we won't go there, but you can go read in Revelation 20 after the thousand-year reign of Christ. Satan is released from bondage. There's all sorts of questions on what that means. We don't have time today, but he's released from bondage. And just in a matter of about three or four verses, evil is crushed. And it's amazing because God sure seems powerful enough to bind Satan and then let him loose. And you see evil cave in on itself. He uses evil to kill evil. He's so powerful that he can engage with everything that opposes him and use it against itself. And then in Revelation 21 and 22, you have this incredible wedding banquet. And all is set right. And you just look, wow, like those last two chapters, there's no evil. And the first two chapters, there's no evil. But Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 is God working with evil. All of it. In spite of it, sure. But oftentimes through it. And so I, I'm, every time I read a weird story like Samson, I say, why did they put that in there? Oh, I'm going to have to assume that the writer is just kind of fascinated. The Holy Spirit working through him as well. Just fascinated with how big God is to achieve his purposes and his will through someone like Samson. Through someone like Gideon. Deborah, these are, these are not people that you would put out and say, yeah, that's my candidate. It's just like God's doing his thing. And whoever he needs to use, he'll use it. He's incredibly sovereign. So there's all these cases of just proof after proof that God knows what he's doing and he's bigger than we ever give him credit for. And so we ask the question, like, what do we need to do in light of this? And I think that means we need to be a little more discerning. Namely, um, you know, I, I mentioned the election stuff. Um, years like this one, and in contemporary culture like the one we have, I think it's really easy for a lot of us to get panicked and to grow fearful 
and to doubt whether everything is going to work itself out. And so I don't really care what side of the political spectrum you're on or if your candidate's in the lead or whatever. It's like, I know. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll voice my opinion. I'll cast my ballot. And then I know whatever shakes out is what God planned. <laughs> like, pick the candidate you hate the most and then come to grips with the fact that maybe God wants that person to run this country. Because no one was going to pick Nebuchadnezzar. And yet God picked him. Nobody in this room would have asked Samson to be the judge over our nation. God picked him. And I think that oftentimes our, our confusion is that like the best thing in God's mind is the best thing in my mind. And if that's not the most arrogant thought in the world, I don't know what is. But that's how I tend to think. I tend to think, well, of course God's a Republican, you know. <laughs> and, he might, and he might kind of work things out that way. I think, I think he's, believe me, you're a little political system that's a couple hundred years old. It's not that impressive to God. And so it, it, whenever I want to get all riled up about whatever's going on and how this country is going straight to hell, sure, probably is. And God is totally fine. And he's got it. And so we have to, you know, I, I, don't think, I don't think panic and fear are Christian virtues. Pity is a Christian virtue. Compassion's a Christian virtue. Honesty's a Christian virtue. Hope is a Christian virtue. Fear and panic are not. Yes, I think you should. I think you should. That, that, that goes past fear and panic to wisdom. That is wise. But the truth is, like, we just looked through Scripture, and God's got things under control, and he's using surprising people all throughout. I mean, he just, I wanted to kind of just, let's list all the underdogs God uses, and we'd still be here tomorrow. You know, that's just what he does. And I think he's always trying to demonstrate, yeah, I don't need you. Paul wasn't impressive. Apparently, he was not an impressive man by all accounts. Greatest missionary to have ever lived. Planted churches all over the world. Not an impressive person. God's like, I don't need impressive people. I'm fine. Hope is the, the kind of penultimate Christian virtue in the New Testament. So I'm going to leave you with a, a couple of uh, passages where Paul and Peter remind us that... Um, the reason that we are discerning, the reason that we pause and reflect on the fact that God is all oh, so sovereign is because when we discern like that, it leads to hope. This is Paul in Romans 12, starting in verse 9. He says, let love be genuine. Describing kind of the Christian lifestyle. Abhor what is evil. This does not mean that though God works with evil that we're okay with it. We don't condone evil. Just know that God's bigger than it. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Even in election years. 
and be constant in prayer, even in election years. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Like you can live that way if you trust God's sovereignty. If you are terrified that things are about to come unraveled and you've got to make the right decisions to make sure that we take care of all this, then I don't know how you live like that. But when you trust that God's got it, you can live like that. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Hope is a Christian virtue. It's just a natural byproduct of being reborn. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this, this is so convicting, in this you rejoice, that though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says it's a Christian thing to just hope. Peter says it's a Christian thing to hope. And I can hope in a whole lot whenever I trust that this is real. And I should check my heart every time I start to doubt that it's not. Genesis 3 through Revelation 20 is one gigantic testimony to the fact that God uses screwed up evil people to do what he wants. And that's why we have Samson. To be honest, that's why you have Moses. Moses is no hero. I can't beat into my, head, my son's head enough that David is not a hero. Yeah, Dad, he threw the rock. Okay. <laughs> He's not a hero. We should hope more and trust in the sovereignty of God. Let me pray, and we'll be done. Father, the fact that we can even pray to you tells us something of your character and your bigness, your power. God, I pray that you would put it on our hearts to scour your word for more and more evidence that you really are the one holding all the cards. You really are the one playing both sides of the chessboard. That you ask us to be involved, but any power we have is delegated from you. It's an authority that's been given. And help us to remember that we are citizens in a kingdom that serves an incredibly powerful king. I pray that we would never confuse your abilities and your will with the idea that we have to make sure things happen. Help us to trust you. Help us to read stories like that of Samson and say, wow, I'm probably more like Samson than I want to admit. And when I come to that point, I pray that you would help me see just how holy you are and help me stop overestimating my own righteousness. Father, teach us to love your word and teach us to read it well. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.